Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. It sounds like some of you guys need a little bit of wake up. Okay. No, I'm messing. I don't want to be like that. But I did accidentally get off my notes. There we go. So, hey, in case you didn't notice, we've got some new gear over in the uh, info, uh, info desk over there. So got some cool new shirts if you want to go get one. We've had people asking for them for a long time. So there they are. There's even one that has the Sheboygan Lighthouse on it. So local stuff. And right here, too, on the Wisconsin, you see the little leaf saying, you are here. So um, some cool stuff. Go check it out and get yourself some and represent the church wherever you go. A couple of other quick, really cool updates um, you know, last week we gave everyone an opportunity, well, two weeks in a row really, to give towards uh, the chaplain in Ukraine who's doing gospel work there, ministering to those people, um, and reported last week that it was over $3,000. Well, you guys gave some more, and then this last week uh, I signed a check of over $4,000 that's gone out in the mail last week to, to support that gospel mission work there. And so thank you for your generosity, praise God for that, uh, as well as we had said, updating that 11 people after our last new members class, we had 11 people become members. Well, some more paperwork came in the mail, and we had 15 new members uh, join the church family. So praise God for what, yeah, you can clap if you want to. Um, that's exciting because it means that God is moving on people's hearts um, to contribute and participate and that God is moving on people's heart. They're excited about what God's doing in our church family. So Let's keep praying that, that God keeps doing that, that God helps us be faithful with the church family that we have, that we would love and serve one another well. So today is Palm Sunday. Uh, as many of you know, I am much of a, a, a Bible nerd. I like to dig into historical cultural contexts and Hebrew and Greek and all that kind of stuff. And when you consider Palm Sunday, in my study and research, I actually found out the real reason that it's actually called Palm Sunday, everybody thinks it has to do with the palm branches when Jesus was coming in. The real reason is because Jesus was like, devil's going to get these hands today. Bad joke. Okay, cool. We'll move on. I, you know, so I tried that in first service. I thought you guys had a better sense of humor than first service, but I guess it actually reveals that I'm the one with the flawed sense of humor and that maybe if I find something funny on Instagram, I should keep it to myself. Just enjoy the laugh yourself, Stephen. They won't get it. It's okay. Thanks for the sympathy there. All right, so it's Palm Sunday. Yeah, it really is about the palm branches and about Jesus. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. So uh, just a couple of quick things there, too, with Easter this week and Monday, Thursday. You know, we have the 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. That is a you come and go on your time. It doesn't mean you have to be here at 6 or at noon or at 6 on the dot anywhere within that hour. It's a time for you to come in and reflect and observe the Lord's table on the day that he was taking uh, the, Lord's, the Lord's table, his table, uh, observing the Last Supper, the Passover with his disciples. And it's a really great time of reflection and prayer and communion uh, as we lead into Good Friday. And then one more thing that wasn't mentioned on Good Friday, something that our uh, Sheboygan Falls clergy group uh, has done traditionally every year is that we invite our churches to work together on something called the Crosswalk, where on Friday at 12 o'clock noon, we'll meet downtown at the municipal building. There's going to be a cross there, and one guy's going to carry that cross, and we're all going to walk behind him silently, giving witness to the community that we're following Jesus. And so if your Friday at noon is open and you want to be a part of that, again, just meet down at the municipal building at noon on Friday, 
um, and that crosswalk will finish. And then you can hop straight into the one o'clock Passion of the Christ showing if that's what you want to do. That's how I'm going to do it. I won't be at the six o'clock. So if you guys are at the six o'clock, have fun. Um, I'll be at the one o'clock showing of the Passion of the Christ. But we're excited for this week. Ultimately, be praying right now. Be asking that the Lord would prepare your heart now for Easter and that the Lord would make you sensitive to different people in your life that he might want you to invite. And let me tell you, the best way to invite people to come to Easter is by saying, hey, I would love to sit with you. Would you come to church with me on Easter? Are you going to a church? If not, would you come with me? I would love to sit with you. Make that personal invite, not just come to my church, but I'd love to sit with you and make it personal that way. Having said that, Let's get into the word as we continue on in the year of the Bible. If you're new here, if you're a visitor, we're doing something we're calling the year of the Bible where we're taking 2022 to go from Genesis to Revelation, reading the high points of the story of Scripture, the meta narrative of Scripture, that, so that we can see how this is not a book of just random little stories with random little moral lessons that we should learn, but this is a story that from beginning to end is leading up to pointing to Jesus Christ, revealing Jesus Christ, this redemptive story, and I have loved it. We have a reading plan, so if you want to jump in on that with us, you can grab that after service is over out at the info desk. We'll be jumping in on week 14, I think, 14 this next week, um, but then of course next week being Easter, I won't be preaching um, the year of the Bible, I'll be preaching an Easter sermon next week. So having said that, uh, right now, we are, this last week, we read through Judges and Ruth, and after finishing Joshua, see, Joshua, having conquered much of the promised land, just recapping, calls Israel at the end of his life one more time, after Moses did this, Joshua does it too, one more time, calls the Israelites to faithfulness to God, before he finally dies and he's heading out. And he also challenges them saying, guys, we conquered much of the land of Canaan, but there's still some kingdoms and some cities and some peoples that have not been conquered yet. So go ahead after I die and conquer those people, take all of the promised land and make sure again that you don't adapt to their gods and their ways and their kingdoms, but stay faithful to the Lord. And so then we are in Judges, where this last week we saw that Israel turns from God. Right after, Joshua gives these commands and says, hey guys, don't forget, be faithful to God, inherit all the land, conquer these people, and, and serve the Lord in the land. We see in Judges, they don't do a good job at that. In fact, if you wanted to draw a theme from Judges, there's two main themes, one being the, the effects of apostasy or the, the results of turning from God, Judges is not a, a, a happy book. It's a book of failure. It's a book of the people of God turning away from God and obey, disobeying all the explicit commands that they receive from God, like don't serve other gods, only serve me. Well, they turn immediately after Joshua dies into serving false gods. And what we're going to see is this cycle in Judges. When you hear the word Judges, we're not thinking Judge Judy. Like we're not thinking courtroom and gavel. And the biblical judge in the book of Judges was more so a militaristic and political leader. It was someone who God appointed in that day, this era of Judges. Remember that God led his people with Moses. Then he led his people with Joshua. 
And now in this era after Joshua is the era of judges, where God appoints different judges to lead his people, to lead different parts of his people in different times throughout this period. It was anywhere from 160 to 410 years. This is a long period of time that we have these 21 chapters of Judges, if we're not careful, we'll read it and we'll just think this is stuff that happens just really quickly. There's actually a lot of gaps in there. This is at least 160 years, at most 410 years. We don't know exactly because some scholars think that these judges overlapped some. And so, but what we need to know is that these judges were appointed by God to rule and reign when what would happen is the people of Israel in the era of judges began this, this vicious cycle of sin that led them spiraling into just depravity and full apostasy. And we're going to see this cycle that happens that the people of God, Joshua dies, the people turn from God and start serving and worshiping the gods of the land, just like they were just told not to do. And because of this, God removes his blessing from them and hands them over to the pagan kings to rule over them. And they're oppressed and they're suffering. And when this happens, the people of Israel become repentant. They're tired of their suffering. And they begin crying out to God. God in mercy hears their cry and God raises up a judge, a ruler to save them from the oppression. And then they experience a season under the judge of, of peace and harmony and blessing of God. And then everyone's happy. And then the judge dies, and then they turn from God again. And then the same thing happens where they're handed over to a foreign king who oppresses them under the judgment of God, and then they become burdened and grieved, and then they repent, and God raises up another judge to save them out of that oppression, and then they are happy and peaceful and enjoying the time of peace and serving the Lord, and then that judge dies, and it happens again. I'll stop repeating the cycle for you, because we could do this all day. But cycle after cycle, the people of God in Judges go from good to okay to bad to downright depraved, just terrible. And we can see this in the last and most popular judge in the story, Samson. We see this in his life as manifest being the judge that God raised up. He made some really stupid and bad decisions, right? Like his lust, his flesh, his sin heart, sinful heart caused him to neglect the clear commands that God had put not only on Israel, but on his life and the Nazarene covenant of not cutting his hair, not drinking wine, not touching unclean things. He totally throws those things out of the window because he finds this really hot lady, apparently Delilah, who he's like, I'll have some. And he disobeys everything that God had said. And you would think he learned his lesson. When three times we see Samson and Delilah, and Delilah says, oh, Samson, what's the secret to your strength? And he's like, oh, it's this. And she's like, okay. And she tries to sabotage right after that what he said was the secret to his strength. You would think he would go, she might be bad news. But the sinful heart wants what the sinful heart wants. And when your heart longs for sin, it causes you to overlook clear and obvious danger. And you pursue your own destruction that your heart longs for in sin. And twice it happens, you would think he would recognize, wait a minute, this is two times. I told her what my strength was, and then she tried to take it from me. But still, he wakes up one day, no hair, and he's weak because he, he listened to his flesh and his sinful desires more than he listened to the word of God, the commands of God, and the commands that were put on his life. And so we see 
Even guys like Gideon who were like, yeah, Gideon, the man who dwindled the army down to 300 and trusted God and all these. He ended up making this, uh, this ephod, this, this um, instrument of idolatry after his victories for God. So, so over and over with these people, we see they keep spiraling down into sin. That no matter how much they knew about God or knew what the commands were, their sinful hearts continue to overrule and lead them into the desires of what their heart wanted. This is actually why, and, and I'll say this real quick too, in Judges, this is when Israel is still technically a theocracy, not a democracy where people are elected to lead or a monarchy where there's kingdoms, a, a king who rules and reigns. At, at this point, it's still a theocracy where God is the rule and there's people who represent him and give instruction, which sounds ideal, right? Like, if we could pick, like, wouldn't we want that today where God is the ruler? What if God was the ruler of America? Man, that would be awesome. Except the problem would still be what happened in Judges, that they're sinful people, that people still have sinful hearts. So even though it might be ideal for God to be the ruler, the fact that God is the ruler doesn't equal people following him. This is why, I might ruffle some feathers for a second, this is why there actually will never be on this side of eternity something that is truly a Christian nation. Because no matter how much you try to legislate righteousness, which, hear me out, please don't just tune me out and get upset and start working on your email draft right now. Hang on. Because no matter how much you try to legislate righteousness, you are trying to mandate for people something that their sinful hearts hate and that their fallen minds can't understand. Now, having said that, I voted last week, and I think you should vote. I think we should vote. I think we should participate. The question is, for the believer, is your hope in political outcomes or in the eternal king? If your hope for the spread of Christianity is in appointing and electing the right people, you will be sadly disappointed. If we invested half as much time in evangelism and discipleship and in missions as we did in our passionate commitment to our politics, that's where we would start to see godliness rise in our communities, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. I am not saying throw out politics and don't care and don't pay attention, so don't accuse me of that. I'm not saying don't vote. I think you should do all of that. But if you really want to see righteousness rise in your community, in your state, in your nation, in the world, then dump more energy into telling people about Jesus, inviting them into the gospel, sharing them the truth of the word of God, discipling them, walking with them. That is how you're going to see righteousness rise in your land. Okay, I'm done. Making friends this morning, yeehaw. See, otherwise, if you're just trying to legislate these things, and again, I think Christians should vote as often as possible and as much as possible to, to bring godly principles into play. And listen, a, a nation can be founded on godly principles. That doesn't equal it being a Christian nation because it's a bunch of sinners. So we got to be careful where we place our hope. We should participate. We should make Christianity pervade as much as we can through the gospel, through missions, 
through evangelism. Okay, how many emails am I going to have tomorrow? We see this on full display in the fact that Israel, up until this point, if you don't believe what I've just said, up until this point, Israel has had pure and holy and righteous laws, not just policies or suggestions, laws from God given to them. Do they follow them? No, the heart is the issue. The heart is the issue. And so we see up until this point, they've seen God's power. They've known his laws. They have experienced his protection and his blessing and his provision. Even with Moses, even right after their deliverance, even right after the law was given, they faltered. And so we find ourselves today in the book of Judges. Let's look really quickly. Judges chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 6. Remember, Joshua is dying here. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries, or within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers. Here we go. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Pause. Do you remember how much in the commandments how much focus, how much emphasis was given to remember the Lord when you go into the land. Don't forget what the Lord has done. Remember the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I want you to observe the Passover so that when you observe the Passover, you can tell your sons, sons, we do this because the Lord redeemed us out of Egypt. When you observe the festival of the bread, of the unleavened bread, do this to remind your children, to teach your children. We saw in Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Teach it to your children and, and teach them as you go about the way, as you are in your home, as you are sitting down, as you are lying as you rise and as you go to sleep and everything that you do put this into your kids train them up and somehow they drop that ball and there arose a generation who didn't know the Lord didn't know his ways man let that not be said of us by the grace of God can we be the people who are intentionally pouring into our children, teaching them, looking for opportunities where things happen when we're out at the store or when we're hanging out with family or when we're at school or when we're at whatever it might be, that we're paying attention, looking for opportunities to teach our sons and daughters. To say, hey, son, hey, daughter, you know, this is kind of like how the Bible says this. Or, honey, you know, the Bible wants us to be like this. Or, hey, you know, your friends might be okay with that stuff, but we're not. Or your friends might, their parents might let them do that, but here's the reason why we don't do that. Please, God, let us be faithful disciple makers in our home. 
that we would practice in our church, family discipleship, where your hope for your child's faith isn't just in the kids' wing or in the youth ministry. We want to do everything we can to help you, but it is so important that parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, church family are doing everything we can to contribute to family discipleship, where we are modeling, not just talking and telling, saying, kids, obey Man, if there was a phrase in parenting that I could just damn and condemn, it would be, do as I say, not as I do. No. You show your kids what you believe by what you do. You show your kids what you believe by what you do. We show them that we prioritize God by faithfully coming to gather with the church family to worship. We show them that we really believe this stuff by praying and living it out. We show them godly generosity by making sure our kids are aware that we're giving, by, show, by letting our kids be a part of, of, of serving or, or being charitable in the community or whatever. We want to model because you can tell them all day long, but what you model, my goodness, I have seen my daughters parrot me in a way that can be scary sometimes. It makes me go, oh, yikes. Where'd you hear that? Oh, me? Oh. Modeling is important. Let it not be said of us that we would be a, that there would come a generation after us who didn't know the Lord, who didn't know his works. Can we tell God what he has done in our lives, what he ha- how he has been faithful? Okay, rant done. Let's continue reading in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those are pagan gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned them, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. One more, we see the people of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But what we are about to see is even in their apostasy, even in their hard-heartedness, even in their rebellion, even in their immediately turning away from what they knew was right, we see God extend the hand of mercy, extend the hand of grace as we continue on here reading in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them that they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. 
So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Right there is where we have the explanation, the summary of how these people turned from the Lord, and they would be oppressed, and they would cry out, and God would raise up a judge to save them. And one more time, I want to give you the picture literally, of how this goes, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, with Othniel, the first judge that God raised up. Verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel, here we go, surprise, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishatham eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, was that one who, who they raised up, or who God raised up. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishatham. So the, land, uh, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Listen, if you're pregnant and looking for baby names, there you go. There's quite a few good ones in there. Yikes. This is the first picture of the cycle that we see with these judges. The issue remains in the people's heart, their sinful hearts, and their fallen minds. Now, I want to jump forward to the end of the book. And, and here's the hard part with judges. I want to stop and I want to take a week talking about Deborah in jail and how she drove the tent spike into homie's skull while he was sleeping. I want to take a week to talk about Gideon and the 300 men. And I want to take a, a week to talk about Samson and all that. But the thing that I love about what we're doing with the year of the Bible is it makes us step back and go, okay, these are all really cool stories in the era of judges. But what's the point of the book of Judges? What is the main thing that the Lord wants us to see here? And so if we look at the very last chapter in Judges, Judges 21 and verse 25, the last verse puts this capstone on the book and it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Here is handed this paired problem. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the ending, the summary, the capstone of this book. Not only is it that, because if we went back to Joshua chapter 17 and verse 6, you would see this exact same phrase. There was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you went forward one more chapter to chapter 18 and verse 1, it echoes again, there was 
was no king. If you went into chapter 19 in verse 1, it echoes again, there was no king. And if you study hermeneutics, the, the process of interpreting scripture, one of the first things you learn is to pay attention to repetition. The author wants us to see something here, wants us to notice, wants us to recognize there is a problem with the fact that there wasn't a king, and because of that, people did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And if we cannot see this today in our society, when people are left to decide what they think is right and what is wrong, you do you, you follow your truth, I'll follow my truth. No, there's no such thing as yours and my truth. Truth is truth. And when you say it's yours and mine, it becomes relative and subjective. It's not truth at that point anymore. It's opinion. And people with fallen minds, fallen in sin, can contrive all sorts of wickedness and debauchery, and we see it all over the world today. And what we could see from this as, it, as it's pointing out an obvious flaw that people did what was right in their own eyes is that God defines good and evil. We don't get to. We think we do. And people debate and argue. We don't get to decide what is good and what is evil. The author of all things decides what is good and what is evil. And we must humble ourselves to him and recognize that he is the one who is infinitely wise, the one who is currently upholding all things by the word of his power, the one who is currently giving us life at this very moment. And we think we have the right to say, no, I think that, that this is good. And I think that this should be bad. And God's sitting here going, well, you can think what you want, but I'm the one who decides and so we want to be on his side. And listen, this is, this is abrasive to our nature. This is contrary to our nature. We think we, we think we know. We think we have the right. We think we have the, the capacity and the fortitude and the wisdom to sort these things out and discern them. And what we see is apparent in our society today that when man is left to decide what they think is right and wrong apart from the word of God, it is not good. And we see people today calling bad things good and good things bad. So Judges ends with the problem. There was no king, and people did what was good in their own eyes. And then in the reading plan last week, we found ourselves reading the whole book of Ruth, four chapters. And you're going, okay, how are we going to tie this all together? Well, when you step back and you consider the purpose of Judges trying to show there was no king, and people did what was right in their own eyes, we zoom into this life of this woman named Naomi. And we're going to read about Naomi and her husband and her two sons and her two daughter-in-laws. Let's go there to, uh, to Ruth chapter 1. Let's read about the tragedy of this woman. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Whoa. Oh, there's a little connection there. These are not just random little separated things. They're trying to help us see this story that we're about to have a glimpse into is happening in this era of Judges. In the days when Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab was not, not Israel yet. It was pagan, ungodly, false gods. So they go to sojourn in the land, the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilhion, more for the roster there. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Pause. Remember the commands from Deuteronomy that they, as they go into the land, were not to take for themselves wives from among the pagan nations. I guess they forgot or didn't care. Either way, God redeems it. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, flashing back to this culture and the historical cultural context, if your husband died and you became a widow, okay, your sons now take the responsibility to take care of you. So she's fine, right? No, both of her sons die. This woman finds herself in the midst of the deepest and darkest tragedies in her life. She's widowed. Her husband dies. Her two boys die. And all that she has left is her daughters-in-law, which is problematic because she doesn't have a means in the way that that culture was run and the laws that were in place. She has no means to care for herself. And so she's distraught. She's forlorn. She's bitter. She's angry. She's hopeless. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, Orpah, Ruth, God has dealt harshly with me. You girls should go away, stay here in Moab, do your own thing, start over, find yourself some good new men and start over. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem and probably just die. And Orpah's like, okay, she's out. She's only caring about herself. But we see the character of Ruth, which is cited as being a woman of high character, who has compassion and love for her mother-in-law in her tragedy, in her suffering, and says, no, I'll not leave you. And, and, and Naomi tries again to convince her, saying, no, you need to go. Listen, I don't have sons for you to marry anymore. So if you stay with me, you're, you're bearing my burden. And, and Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. Not the Baals, not Ashtaroth. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. Your people will be my people. And we see this outsider because of her compassion and her love coming to faith in God and being brought into the family. And so Ruth says, wow. I'm sorry, Naomi says, wow, okay. And Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem. Let's pick up reading in, in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. That would be the equivalent of me saying, do not call me Stephen, call me bitter. That's literally what she said. That's what Mara means. It's where the name Mary, the name Marley, my daughter's name, means bitter. <laughs> She's saying, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, I'm sorry, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I, I know there's many of us who can empathize with Naomi, in her season of suffering, in her, her tragedy, in the midst of what was probably the deepest, darkest point in her life where she's saying, just don't even call me by my name, just call me bitter because of what God's doing in my life. She's angry, she's hurt, 
She's hopeless. And I know many of us can feel the same way, but what Naomi did not know was what God was working together for her good and the plan of a king and a Messiah's lineage who would come. That in the midst of her tragedy, God was orchestrating sovereignly over something that he was lining up a family that would come and become the greatest king and the greatest family in the nation of Israel that would also become the lineage of the Messiah. And hopefully what we can see is this, in this is take the comfort and the solace that in our seasons of tragedy or suffering, that God's not just left us, but he's working all things together for our good and that he has a plan. And so Ruth and, and, uh, Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Bethlehem and Naomi sets up home somewhere and Ruth is like, well, I'm going to go find some food for us. And remember in the law, there were rules that as you harvested your fields, you had to leave the, leave the edges uncut for sojourners who were passing through so they could get food or for poor people. And now Naomi and Ruth have found themselves among the poor people. And so Ruth's going, oh, I've got to get us some food. She goes and finds a field with some barley and she starts harvesting off the edge of the field. It just so happens to be the field of this man named Boaz, who just so happens to be family of Naomi, who just so happens to be qualified under the Hebrew law to be capable of being her kinsman redeemer. Just so happened on that field out of all the fields. Hmm. And so she goes and she's picking grain and Boaz is out and he calls his servants. He says, hey, who's that girl out there? And they say, well, this is a girl named Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, you know, your family member. And uh, Naomi's husband and sons died, and they're here. They've got nothing, and she stayed with her. And so her, her character becomes known to Boaz. Boaz goes and talks to her and says, hey, don't even just pick from the edges. Stay with my girls and pick from the crop. And then she goes back to Naomi with this huge bunch of crop, of barley, and Naomi says, where'd you get this? And she said, well, I went to a field and found this guy named Boaz. And Naomi's like, wait, Boaz? He's our family, and in fact, he's capable of being our kinsman redeemer. As we are hopeless, as we are suffering in, our, in this tragedy, God lined up something for her to go, wait, wait, maybe God's doing something that I didn't see. Maybe God is orchestrating things that I didn't understand in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And so then Ruth and Boaz begin cultivating this relationship. And finally, it gets to the point where, where Naomi says, hey, Boaz is going to be in the threshing floor tonight. Go in. And essentially, she's telling her, present yourself, submit yourself to him. What she asks him to do is ultimately a strong proposal. It's like a legitimate putting herself out there like, do you want me? And so she goes in while he's asleep, takes the covers off of his feet, lays at his feet. He wakes up and like any of us would have, we go, whoa, who, whoa, <laughs> who's in my bed? And she's like, it's me, Ruth. And he blesses her and welcomes her and says, I will, I will marry you. I will redeem you. But first, according to the law, there's someone else who has the right of first in the lineage. So we've got to go by them. So they go to this guy and he says, hey, you come here, 10 elders. Listen, Ruth's here. 
his daughter Naomi, Naomi's going to sell this right of Elimelech's land. Do you want it? And the guy's like, more land for my inheritance? Yeah, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz is like, well, hang on. There's also Naomi and Ruth that are packaged in the deal. And the guy goes, oh, uh, actually, actually, maybe I'm good. And he selfishly decides in his liking of his own comforts and conveniences, as well as he says, I can't divide up my, my property. I don't want to ruin my inheritance by adding two more people to it. So uh, actually, I'll pass. And Boaz is like, great. And so Boaz then redeems and marries and buys her back. And we'll pick up here in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife and went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the, woman, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is, more than the, uh, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a, uh, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David? Hmm. Now there are the gener these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This book of Ruth coming right after Judges. Judges declaring there's no king. And people did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Shows this woman's tragedy where God sovereignly leads to a family that would become the family of the pure king, David. I don't mean pure perfectly because he sinned and jacked up. We know that. But he became the greatest king of the nation of Israel and the king that would eventually produce the Messiah. Look at what God does in his word. Right after presenting, there's no king. People follow whatever they want. People follow whatever they think is right in their own eyes. In the midst of this woman's tragedy, God lines up the family that would become the Messiah, the king of kings, the king eternal, would come from the line of David. In today's Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday about? Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem before he goes to redeem his people. And as he's coming into the land, riding on the colt, as was prophesied in Zephaniah, riding on the donkey, the people are laying their coats down before him as royalty. And they're waving palm branches before him as royalty. And in Luke 19, verse 38, as he's coming in, they declare this, saying, Blessed is the king, the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and heaven and glory in the highest. 
There was no king in the land, and people did whatever their eyes thought was right. And we have a king. We have a redeemer. That like the outsider Ruth, we outsiders can be bought back, redeemed into the family of God. And did you know something else? This Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, do you know who his mom was? Rahab. The prostitute we read about in Joshua in the city of Jericho, the outsider who was grafted into the family of God by her faith and acted on her faith and becomes the lineage of the Messiah, the King of Kings, the King Eternal, King Jesus, who rode in on the cult. And some people were awakened to see their king come And hopefully, by the grace of God, may we be awakened to the King who came and will come again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the brilliance of your wisdom. How how you were doing things in these lives that they didn't even see, they didn't even know. And thankfully, we can look in your word and we can now see and we can now know what you were doing. God, I ask that you would help us trust you and what you have said is yet to come by seeing what you have done according to what you said you would do. Lord, I mean, help us see what you said and what you did. Help us today see what you said and what you promised you will do. That we would place our faith, our hope, and our potential redemption. Not in Boaz, but in Jesus Christ. And that we would not be like Israel of old, who, who followed whatever they thought was right in the moment, but that we would follow our King Jesus. And God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, in this room or in the commons or online, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes to see your plan, open their eyes to see their need to be redeemed and bought back into your family, their need to be forgiven of their sins, their need to repent and turn from sin and follow Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, save them, change them, transform them, and make them new. That we would leave a generation that would know you and serve you, and follow you, and that we would live for your glory every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.